Good morning. Happy first real snow day, at least if you live in Brattleboro. Guys up the hill have been getting it. <coughs> well, we're continuing in our series in Advent, and today we will be looking specifically at the second half, or really the middle of chapter 2 in the book of Matthew. And this particular narrative is, is troubling um, for many reasons, but I also believe it's filled with hope and genuine comfort for those who are looking to Jesus as the Christ. And so, um, to give you a, a background, if you have been missing any part of our Advent series, uh, Matthew starts his gospel with a genealogy that ends in David uh, being the covenant bearer and Jesus being seen as the true son of David. And we see this in the sections of the genealogy. Uh, in Hebraic culture, it would have been very common to associate numbers with names. And uh, if you spell out names or any uh, word, they, they had no vowels. So if you add up the, letter, the numbers associated with David's name, you get 14. And there happens to be three 14s in the generational line that lead to Jesus. That was intentional. The author, the uh, recipients of this gospel would have understood it to, to mean that Jesus is truly the son of David. And that's significant. It's very significant because it's fulfillment of covenantal promises. And we're going to see uh, some other covenantal things happening in this narrative as well. But we first are... We first are, are confronted with this idea that Jesus is indeed the fulfillment of everything Israel has been longing for. And then we see that a virgin was given, was given the role and the duty to bear Jesus the Christ in her womb. And this had scared her fiancé. Joseph, and Joseph is told that by an angel that he should stay with Mary and that this indeed would be the Christ. And then last week we looked specifically at the Magi, and these were a group of wise men who studied the stars, they studied constellations, and they came from the east. So perhaps they were where we would now consider Central Asia, perhaps they came from further, but mostly, pri primarily, uh, people consider them to be Persian or somewhere in that kind of Medo-Persian world. And these were men who studied the stars. And they saw the star of David, or excuse me, the star that was to uh, signify the birth of the Messiah. And so they come to King Herod and they inquire of the birth of the true king of the Jews. And it startles Herod. And so this is where we're picking off, picking up from. So... Let's read Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 13. We will pray, and then we will begin. Now when they had departed, that is the Magi, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Let us pray. Jesus, we acknowledge that you are indeed the Christ. 
the chosen one, the one anointed by the Father to fulfill all the divine purposes of heaven in establishing your rule and your reign and in creating a people set apart for your possession. We confess that your ways are higher, that we do not know your mind, that you are always right and we are wrong. And so we confess before you our great need for you, our need to prostrate ourselves before you, and our need to see you who for who you really are by the power of your spirit. I pray that you would dwell in us richly during this season, that we would meditate on your ways, on your mysteries, and that we would rejoice at the hope given to us, even in such a painful story as this. Lord, please have your way among us, and would you uh, be magnified in us and through us for your name's sake. Amen. <clears throat> All right, so Im- immediately we'll, we'll start right at verse 13, but I do want to tell you, just for if you're a note taker, um, I've titled the sermon, Hope Delayed But Not Lost. Hope Delayed But Not Lost. And my three points... In- within the text are the journey to Egypt, Herod's rage, and suffering for him and with him. So verse 13, we see this angel has appeared to Joseph. This is for the second time, right? Previously, he appeared to Joseph to comfort him in saying, look, stay with Mary. This child is from the Lord. This child is from the Lord because he had found out that she was pregnant, she was a virgin, his fiancée, and probably like any guy, was thinking, well, that was good while it lasted, but I clearly can't trust you. But he was a decent man and wanted to put her away quietly, but the angel intervenes. This time, an angel appears, and he brings a warning. It says, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. And remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And so it's important to note what Matthew is doing here as the author. He's already, if you look at the genealogy, we actually, he, he uses Joseph's line at the tail end to bring us to the Christ. And whereas Luke continues through Mary's line. And this is important for for Jewish culture, for a male to have headship and for that birth line to come from him. And so even though Joseph is not the biological father of Jesus, he takes on the role and the responsibility as father. And so the angel comes to him in the middle of the night, not Mary. Mary indeed is blessed and in a very real sense is the mother of God. But yet, Joseph has the role and responsibility of as father, as head of the home. And so the angel comes to him in the middle of the night and gives him warning. And as an aside, what, what does Joseph do? In verse 14, we see that he rises immediately. Immediately. They leave in the middle of the night. And I just want to say, as an aside, that this is faith. This is faith. So often we set terms for our obedience when we're confronted with the word of God. We like to preserve a sense of control in any given situation. And if you don't think that about yourself, I would say perhaps look a little harder. We like to set the rules to the game so that we don't get played. I know this in my own life. I'm always scheming. And I say that a bit tongue-in-cheek, but in a real sense, I mean it. We're always playing our cards that they might be advantageous to us. And yet, an angel of the Lord, a messenger, that's what angel means, comes to Joseph. 
and says, rise, take the child and flee. And what does Joseph do? He obeys. He obeys. Perhaps he took some time to gather small bags to prepare the camels, perhaps take enough food for the journey, but surely he left house and home. He gets up and he goes because he trusted the word of the Lord. Faith lets go of the delusion of control and simply takes Christ at his word. That is faith. It is active. Joseph did something in response to the word he heard and therein proved his faith. And so, take that. That's an aside, but take that. Verse 15, we see the escape, the flight into Egypt. This is what Matthew says, that this flight into Egypt was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. The prophet he's referencing is Hosea. And this is a very peculiar text. And it's, it's a cornerstone to this narrative. So if you will, turn with me to Hosea chapter 11. We're going to start right at verse 1. Hosea was a, considered a minor prophet, and he had, he had some of the most peculiar duties as a prophet. Um, <laughs> he was instructed to marry a prostitute and to bear, have children with her to prove the Lord's love to his people because the Lord had said, my people have acted like whores. They have betrayed me. They have gone and worshipped the Baals, the idols of the nations. They have prostituted themselves out to the other nations. And so Hosea was a picture of God's love to his people Israel. Hosea was instructed by the Lord to live out this picture and by marrying a prostitute. Another example of just simply taking the word at the Lord, excuse me, the, the Lord at his word, right? Uh, that's, a, that's a tall task. Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. But we must continue to see what Hosea is getting at. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. Now, this is quite prophetic, given what we're reading today. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. This is a, an indictment against Israel by the Lord through the prophet Hosea. He's saying, I loved Israel. I chose him. If you go back in, into the, uh, the, the law of the Old Testament, the first five books of the Bible, particularly in Deuteronomy, we see that the Lord says, I didn't choose you because you were anything <laughs> as a people. You weren't that great. But because I loved you, I chose you from among the nations. Because I loved you, I set my love on you, and I rescued you and redeemed you as my people. And so we see that again here. When Israel was a child, I loved him. This is poetic language, okay? It means when the nation was in infancy, when the people were not that many in number. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. This is a reference back to the Exodus, when God set his love on them and rescued them from the clutches of Egypt 
through signs and wonders. And as they went through the Red Sea, Paul later says that they were baptized unto Moses. That was their baptism, their entrance into the covenant. Yet it was I, but excuse me, they, the more they were called, meaning the more that the Lord wooed them as his people, the more he said, trust me, obey my words, keep the statutes of my laws, the more they went away, the more they rebelled. And we see this rebellion begin right after they leave Egypt. In fact, during the Exodus, the people are rebelling and saying, we want to go back. It was better there. We had food to eat. We'd rather be slaves in Egypt than free in this God-forsaken wilderness. So they kept sacrificing to false gods. They were burning offerings to the idols of the nations. Verse 3 in Hosea chapter 11 says, Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. Here's another aside. We're going to see... You already heard this morning from Jeremiah 31, and you're seeing it here. What does Ephraim have to do with it? Well, this is important, and this is where we get back into covenant, covenant theology. If you remember, Reuben was the firstborn to the sons of Jacob. Jacob's name is changed to Israel. Okay, so Reuben should have had the birthright, but Reuben slept with his father's concubine, and so Reuben's birthright was removed. And it was given to Joseph. But Joseph had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And on Jacob's deathbed, we see this in Genesis 48, Jacob blesses Ephraim, the younger of the two. And if that sounds familiar, it's because Jacob was the younger of his brother, Esau. And so you see this picture of the younger being chosen over the older because God's ways are higher God's ways are higher, and this happens again with Ephraim and Manasseh. And the birthright of Israel is actually given to Ephraim. And in 1 Chronicles 5, in recounting the genealogy, in the middle of Reuben's genealogy, it says the birthright was actually given to Ephraim, but from Judah a chief will come. From Judah a chief will come. Well, we now know that chief to be the Lord Jesus himself, who was of the lineage of Judah. But the birthright of Israel belonged to Ephraim. And so both Hosea and Jeremiah speak to Ephraim in the place of Israel often. And this idea of God's ways being higher than ours, it's important for the rest of this text. Because why would God allow Herod to commit such an atrocity? But we'll get to that. So this text serves as an indictment against Israel. So in what world would Jesus, the Messiah, be that son? We kind of have to ask that question. What does that mean? And furthermore, think about this. Earlier in chapter 1 of Matthew, it's the angel, excuse me. Isaiah is quoted in saying, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us. And yet Jesus is being taken away. So Emmanuel, in the middle of the night, under the cover of darkness, has just left. The one that they had been longing for, the hope of Israel, is gone. He's gone. And it, it wouldn't be a stretch to assume that people were rejoicing at the arrival of the Messiah. Because if we look at the beginning of chapter 2, we see that when the Magi confronted uh, Herod, it says in Verse 3 of chapter 2, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Word had spread. Word had spread. When you see a, a caravan of wise men coming through Judea, it's going to cause some people to raise their eyebrows. 
These men didn't live there. They would have been very peculiar in culture, in dress, in the way they interacted with the locals. And these men are saying all the while, oh, we're looking for the true king of the Jews. That would have caused a stir, and it did. Herod was troubled, and so was all of Jerusalem. And so you have this picture of people. Perhaps I think it's a real case that they're celebrating the arrival of the promised one. And yet in the middle of the night, he leaves. He leaves. He disappears. The one promised to save Israel and to be their true king vanishes. And of all places, he goes back to Egypt. He goes back to Egypt, the place that the patriarchs were warned over and over and over again, don't return to Egypt. Don't return to Egypt. Egypt was a place of enslavement. Don't go there. In Jeremiah, we see that the people, after being exiled, after most of them were exiled to Babylon, the leftovers were like, well, you know, our land's been pretty rocked by Nebuchadnezzar. We'll find rescue and solace in Egypt. And the Lord tells Jeremiah, warn the people, they should not go. They should not go. You need to stay in the land. And yet they go. They go. And so over and over and over again, the people are warned, don't go to Egypt. And yet here we have the Messiah, the promised one, takes up and goes to Egypt in the middle of the night. Why? Why? And, and furthermore, given Hosea's indictment of Israel in Hosea 11, how can the Messiah be like Israel, like that kind of son? Throughout the prophetic books, in particularly Jeremiah and Ezekiel, we see the consequences of Israel's rebellion as sword, famine, and pestilence. Sword, famine, and pestilence. And the arrival of the Messiah brings hope that this is going to be undone, that restoration will come to our land, that we will have true rescue from our oppressors. And yet, not only has he left, but injustice, iniquity, and unrighteousness still abound. And as we will see, a sword will ravage the land. But I want you to hold on to this as we continue through the text. In going to Egypt, though, this is important. Jesus is being marked with Israel. Because in reality, Jesus is the truer and better Israel. If you've never heard that language before, it's, Israel was a type of Christ. And Jesus comes onto the scene and proves that he is the truer and better Israel. Where Israel continually rebels and bucks the law of God, Jesus assumes the responsibility of all that God gave him, all the Father gave him, and fulfills the law completely in utmost righteousness. Israel left Egypt begrudgingly and had to be continually called to faith and obedience. But Jesus, he will leave Egypt and he will continue to live a life completely faithful and obedient to the Father. So Jesus is being marked with Israel and as we will see through the Gospels, it's not all going to happen in this story, Jesus is the truer and better Israel. Verses 16 through 18, Herod's rage. Let me give you a brief synopsis of Herod. This was Herod the Great. There are other Herods in the, in the New Testament, subsequent lines of them. But historians note that this Herod, Herod the Great, was well-liked by Rome. Well-liked by Rome. And if Rome occupied Judea, they occupied Jerusalem, they were political enemies to the Jews. It would be like China taking us over as a country. I mean, that's not even a stretch, okay? It would literally be another country occupying your land and dictating how you could practice the rule of law, your religion, and society in general. And then you had to pay taxes all the while because they occupied you. And if you chose to not pay taxes, well, they'd kill you. So... Herod was well-liked by Rome. Though he was king of the Jews, he was Idumean, which is 
Edomea was south of Judea, uh, where the, the Edomites were, and so the descendants of Esau. And he was notorious for keeping the Jews pacified. He was very good at keeping the Jews calm and quiet in light of Rome. So the Romans liked him, and the Jews tolerated him because he kept the peace. But he was also notorious for very large building projects. He did a lot of infrastructure things. He built himself a very big house. He added on to the temple, I believe, and then he built uh, in Caesarea various buildings that were used for ports and things like that. So he was in some ways also liked by the Jews, not just tolerated by him, because he added uh, to their infrastructure and to the quality of their life. But the Messiah was a threat to Herod for several reasons. The Messiah, and he would know this, everyone knew knew this, okay, because they knew the scriptures and they knew the traditions passed down by the elders, the Messiah would be the true king. And if he's the true king, this would end Herod's rule. It would end his lineage. He would have no successors to the throne because the Messiah would step in and it would be the true line of David. Also, there was well-established tradition that the Messiah would inaugurate political victory and power for the Jews. That they would destroy, that that he would... that they, the Jews, through the help of their Messiah, would overcome their overlords. (laughs) In this case, the Romans. And remember, Herod is fond of Rome, and Rome is fond of Herod. And then lastly, the people would no longer fear Herod, but they would pay tribute to the Christ. So Herod had real reason to be nervous. And his nervousness turned into hatred and bitterness, and rage. And so in rage, verse 16, Herod orders for the systematic execution of male children, two years and younger. This, this is the world that the the Christ enters into. This is the world that Jesus came into. This is the nation that Jesus was born into. This kind of destruction, savagery, a systematic execution of children, which doesn't sound too different than what we're seeing today, is the repercussions of rebellion from the people through generations. As we just read in Hosea, a sword was promised to the land. Israel was guaranteed that a sword would ravage the land. A sword did ravage the land in the day of Hosea, but we see this continue throughout the generations. All the while, they're longing and waiting for the hope of the Messiah. The Messiah comes, and then he disappears. He disappears. So on top of him only being a baby, or a toddler perhaps at this point, so in political terms, useless, He then ups and leaves, and he goes to Egypt of all places. And on top of that, Herod orders the execution of children. Verses 17 through 18, we see the prophet Jeremiah is fulfilled. This is from Jeremiah 31. Elijah read all of the verses preceding this verse in Jeremiah 31. For our opening, it says, A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. They are no more. Rachel was the mother. If you remember the story of the patriarchs, Rachel was the mother of both Benjamin and Joseph. Ramah was a town, a village, in Benjamin, which was just north of of Judea. Benjamin and Judea met at Jerusalem, and Jerusalem being the capital of the southern kingdom. So in this area, 
there was Benjamin to the north, Judea to the south. Bethlehem was in Judea, just south of Jerusalem. But of course, Herod, not knowing the location of this would-be Messiah, sends his death squad out into the region. So Ramah, being of the tribe of Benjamin, Benjamin being a descendant of Rachel, cries out. A voice was heard in Ramah. But not only that, but Rachel was the mother of Joseph. And we just talked about Joseph being the father of Ephraim and Manasseh. It's, it's primarily in Hosea, but the other prophets don't usually reference Israel as Ephraim. And yet Jeremiah did in this chapter. And it, it's, not, it, it's not just associated with this chapter, but it's a little peculiar that both of them reference Ephraim in inheriting that birthright that we talked about from Genesis 48. And it seems to me that this account of Jesus' flight into Egypt and the slaughtering of these children is a linchpin for both of these two prophetic yearnings. They each had a contextual place, like a, a place in history, and they had an immediate context and yet, this story brings them two together, and we see Jeremiah almost, or excuse me, Hosea almost prophesying with the sword, and then Jeremiah being the fulfillment of the lamentation and the suffering and the grief from that sword. And we see this all take place. And I say that so that we all understand that this was no surprise to God. This was no surprise. To the Lord. This kind of injustice at the hand of Herod was not something that God just allowed. But it's something in another sense he authored. And you have to ask why? Why? Is God the author of injustice? No. Or sin? No. Or unrighteousness? No. But there's a mystery to what is happening here. And we will visit again the prophet Jeremiah to see the answer to that mystery. But I, I want us to take a look and see that in the midst, just, just back up a second and look at the greater picture. In the midst of gladness and rejoicing, which is in the text of Jeremiah 31 preceding Verse 15, what Elijah read. There's, there's gladness and rejoicing. They're celebrating the hopes of a new covenant. And then verse 15 comes in out of nowhere with a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. And so you see this framework even in Jeremiah of joy, gladness, celebration, utter despair, utter travesty. And as I said earlier, it's not a stretch to think that many in Judea became aware of the Messiah, the coming of Jesus. And were filled with hope at the promise of favor, prosperity, salvation. And now think about yourself. Do, did we not also greet the Messiah with hopes and dreams of what will be? If you know Christ, did you not also greet him with joy? with gladness of heart, with expectations of what will be now that I know the truth. And yet in the middle of Jeremiah chapter 31 and in the middle of Judea's anxious expectation, tragedy strikes. Tragedy strikes. An evil man hell-bent on his own power, fame, and authority deems it necessary to murder innocent baby boys. These parents did nothing to incur 
that kind of wrath or judgment. Perhaps they were ones who welcomed the Messiah with hope, with joy, and with dreams of what would be. And in an instant, their children are taken from them. Now the hopes and dreams associated with the arrival of the Christ are dashed, and pain and suffering sets in. You too might know this feeling. You might be in a place where you thought that the Messiah's rule over your life also meant that he would heal all that was injured and he would fix all that was broken. That he would protect you from all harm both within and without. But perhaps here you are today not really knowing what you should have expected or if you really even experienced him. Did you even meet him? And so the question remains, is our hope still here? Is he still here? Or did we see him from afar? Did we welcome his entrance? And then he left in the cover of darkness, gone to a faraway land. But there is hope. But the Lord's ways are, are not ours. His ways are higher. And we were called not just to suffer for him, that is on behalf of his name, but to suffer with him. To suffer with him. Where? Where is our hope in the midst of excruciating pain and loss? Particularly in the season of Advent, many memories flood our thoughts. Some of you might be consumed with what was or what could be. Perhaps, perhaps you've, been, you've experienced a type of pain and this year or this season just brings it up from the grave, the pit that you put it in years ago. Perhaps it's a pain from losing a loved one, wounds from family members or friends. Perhaps your marriage is not what you thought it would be. Maybe it's cancer. Maybe it's the fact that your children are living in rebellion to your discipline and to your guidance and you feel like you've failed as a parent. Whatever it is, you might be asking yourself this season, is there still hope for me? Is there still hope for me? But as I said earlier, we were called to not only suffer for him on behalf of his name, but with him. Our Messiah is one who suffered also. He has suffered also. The incarnation is proof that the Son of God has come to be acquainted with our grief, to be acquainted with our sorrows and our suffering, to know full well the weight of sin. Not that he participated in it, but he takes it on himself as the Lamb of God. The Lord God authored that the Son would become sin. Literally personified sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is real hope. You think you're lonely or that no one understands your pain or perhaps that nothing will change. That life following Jesus has resulted in a net loss of joy and satisfaction. I'm here first to say that's a lie and don't believe it. And two, hope is alive. Hope is alive because his name is Jesus. He knows your pain. And the slaughtering of these children did not catch him by surprise, but was meant to produce in you today hope. I know you haven't seen how we're going to get there yet, but I promise you, it is meant to produce in you hope. 
as the truer and better Israel, Jesus is our substitute. He is our substitute. He stands in our place, taking on the wrath of God Almighty, that we might be pardoned for our iniquity. And He gives us His righteousness. He gives it to us. He truly stands in our place. He fills the breach. He has suffered to the utmost so that he might so that he might associate with us who also suffer. One of the early church fathers, Gregory of Nazianzus, said, That which has not been assumed is not healed. If Jesus did not suffer, then he is no savior. If Jesus did not take on real flesh, if he really didn't incarnate and come to us, he is no savior. But the truth is that he truly, truly is the son of God and the son of man. And as such, he is the only one who could breach the gap between God and man. He takes on our sin, and we take on his righteousness. Our suffering does not come to us outside of the hand of God. That is true for us, and it is true for those families that lost their children. But it is given so that we might not just suffer because of him, but suffer with him. What do I mean by that? There's a plethora of instances in the New Testament where this is elaborated on. It's rife with this fact that we are called to suffer, but I'm only going to read from a few. Matthew 5, verses 10 through 12, Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they prosecuted the prophets who were before you. Romans 8, 16 through 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. There is no glory to come if we do not first endure the suffering set before us. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 11. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. He's talking about the hope of faith within us. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always, this is the key. Many people stop there. This is the key. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death. For Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. Do you want to see the Christ? Do you want to experience Him? Do you not just want to see Him from afar and feel as if He's vanished in the darkness of night? Then you must trust the ways of the Lord and entrust yourself to Him even as you suffer. This is the way. He models it on the road to Calvary, bearing a cross for the sins of the world. Jesus himself says, no servant is above his master. No servant is above his master. In experiencing the worst pain and devastation in your life, you are being molded by the hand of God into the image of Christ. Do not spurn him 
There will be weeping and lamentation. But it, it serves a purpose. And it is so that we might bear in our bodies the very life of Jesus. And here's the consolation. Here's the consolation from Peter. 1 Peter 5, 10 through 11. And after you have suffered a little while, it truly is a little while in light of eternity, even when it doesn't feel like it. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. He is the author of it all. And to him belongs all the power and the glory forever and ever. You can trust him because he's the author of the process. And the promise is this. He himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. All hope is not lost. It is not lost. Because our hope died for the sake of our sins. He took on sin personified. He became sin for us. And not only did he die, but the ongoing curse of sin entering the world, death, has been defeated. And we know he is who he says he is because he walked out of a grave and says, you too, you too will meet me again one day. This road will take you to Calvary, but it won't end there. And so what do we say? What do we say to those people or for those people who experienced excruciating pain and loss as their children were senselessly murdered before them. What do we say? What do we say to you? Or what do I say to you in the room who perhaps think, you don't know what I'm going through. You have no clue what I've experienced. You're right. Perhaps some of you have been transparent and I know things and for many of you I might not. But I do know this. I know that the word of God is true. And his promises do not go unfulfilled. And I can attest to that personally. And I believe many of you in the room can also attest to that. And so I'll, I'm going to turn to Jeremiah 31. And I want you to listen to what follows that excruciating verse that cuts in in the midst of gladness, in the midst of joy, in the midst of a promise that the people of God will be satisfied with goodness. In the midst of that, we see Rachel weeping because her children are no more. And this is what follows. Verses 16 and 17. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears for there is a reward for your work declares the Lord and they shall come back from the land of the enemy there is hope for your future declares the Lord listen and your children your children shall come back to their own country Nothing lost to the Lord is gone forever. I fully believe that those families that suffered loss of life in their home because of the rage of Herod will have their children back one day. You too, you too will not lose forever the things lost in the name of Jesus. His promises are so clear that anything given up for him will come back to you a hundredfold. There is hope.
And we might not see it in this lifetime. But Jesus truly is the Messiah. And nothing lost for him is truly lost. Our hope is living. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you, you are the Christ, and I confess that now. I pray that we would have hearts that believe you and trust you to the utmost, that we would not hide within ourselves any area of unbelief, any area of idolatry, or any area of fear that's not given to you. Lord, please search us that we might be found to be blameless before you. And please bring to us joy everlasting. Teach us to suffer well as you have suffered and to entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly. Lord, for those in the room who are in the midst of pain and trauma, even now, I pray that they would heed your word that it would be balm to the wounds of their soul and that they would walk in faith and obedience at all you've given us please Lord please be our comfort be our satisfaction be our treasure and our joy Would you be uh, rich towards us in mercy and in grace as we walk in faith, entrusting ourselves to suffer for you and with you? Lord, would, may we gladly take up the burden of the cross because you have already paved the way. Lord, conform us to your image. Would we not despise the death that must be endured that we might have life forevermore? We trust you, King Jesus. It's in your name I pray and ask all this, Lord. Amen.